Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Can America and the UK's poor responses to COVID-19 be traced partly to post-Cold War self-congratulations? I mean, which led both to believe they had little or nothing to learn from the rest of the world. I think the short answer is yes. I think it, I think it really is yes. But I think it's more than just the post-Cold War euphoria, if you will, or afterglow that's now been going on for, what, 30 years. I think... Part of it is due to this notion very much ingrained in American culture and internally seen in American foreign policy, and it's been reinforced by the end of the Cold War, and that is this notion of American exceptionalism, right? This idea that you know America is the indispensable country. We're great. Everything functions because of us. And so what that leads you to do, if you're a policymaker, is it could lead you to think that well, gee, since America is so great, um, what do we really have to learn from everyone else? And so as a result, you may not take note of what would be best practices by other countries, lessons learned by other countries, something as simple as the efficacy of face masks, right? Now, obviously, there's people in the U.S. who are wearing face masks. There's people who are social distancing. In fact, I think the recent polling that I saw that the Chicago Council had shared showed that the majority, vast majority of Americans do think there's value in social distancing and in using face masks, but do we use it to the extent that we should? And I think there's a little bit of this notion of both American exceptionalism affecting policy, but then also American individualism and the emphasis on the individual affecting how people respond to it. So I think the other day I made a, a comment about how American individualism is great for starting a business. It's bad for stopping a pandemic, right? So if you have this focus on, you know, the individual, individual rights, individualism, that can lead someone to say, well, you know, I, I don't feel like wearing this mask. It'd be great if other people do, but I don't feel like doing it. And so you don't have this kind of mindset of this is what's best for everybody else. So I think that's one thing that contributes to it. But the other one, going back directly to your question, is this idea of just American exceptionalism and being like, well, we're the indispensable country. We've done so many other things right in the past. Our history is full of all these great accomplishments by the U.S. and doing it alone, pulling up the rest of the world. So we're going to do it here as well. And we're not necessarily going to pay attention to where the best practices that have been implemented by everybody else. I'm going to quote here from the London Financial Times. In a few short months, a microbe has exposed the underside to Anglo-American hubris. Could you explain why it's a little bit more complicated than that? <laughs> yes. I think it is way more complicated than just that the, these microbes have exposed the underside of American Anglo-American hubris. I mean, <laughs> the you could say the under. I mean, depending on your starting point, you could say American Anglo-American hubris has been going on at least since the end of World War II, um, and maybe there was some reasons for that. But I think the more immediate 
indication of Anglo-American hubris is the Iraq War, right? I mean, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I mean, this was where the U.S. and the British government decided to, even though they had a, quote, coalition of the willing, they essentially decided to go it alone, go against the interest of other NATO allies, go against the UN Security Council and say, we are going to implement this policy of invading Iraq, essentially then escalating what had been in place, the containment policy for close to a decade at that point. Um, containment policy admittedly run primarily by the British in the United States. But you could say that that really exposed the underside of Anglo-American hubris. And then we've been seeing that since. I mean, we are still involved in Iraq. We're still involved in Afghanistan, though Afghanistan, you could argue, is not necessarily uh, related to Anglo-American hubris, though there could be some elements to it. But yeah, I think that it is way more complicated than just simply saying that this now shows where the U.S. has been wrong and that the British government is wrong in what they're doing. Um, it's like, no, we can trace this back way far, but definitely to 2003. And that's skipping over things like, well, Brexit, right? I mean, this is a huge part of it. And then even the election of Donald Trump himself, that there is this notion of this appeal to America first and how that seemed to resonate with quite a few people. So, yes, I think that our response to COVID-19, both the British response, the American response, is reflective of this form of hubris. So going back to that first question about American exceptionalism or even Anglo-American exceptionalism, I think there, this, is re this is reflecting that. But there's been plenty of other instances and events over the past you know, almost two decades now to illustrate this form of hubris. China and Tehran appear to be cozying up. I say appears to be because this is a deal that's been brewing since before President Trump was elected. What has changed under the current administration? This is fascinating to me, this potential pact between China and Tehran, uh, between Beijing and Tehran, between China and Iran. Um, this is fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, I just wrote a book called Arguing About Alliances, right? And it's about the negotiation of military pacts. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. But one of the points that I raise in that book is that these things don't just happen. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of effort. There is always the danger that even if the countries have an interest in forming this, it could still fall apart. And in some respects, you see this with this potential pact between Tehran and Beijing because, as you noted, they actually started negotiating this thing almost what, about four years ago, five years ago. So it's been going on for a while. It predates Trump's administration. And yet they're just now starting to reach the point where they've reached an agreement. On the one hand, that shows the difficulty of reaching kind of these comprehensive military, and in this case, there's also a big economic element uh, agreement. But on the other hand, this then goes to probably the heart of your question, which is, well, does the fact, does the timing of finally reaching agreement have anything to do with the Trump administration? And I think it could. I mean, we don't yet know enough. We don't even yet know if uh, Beijing is going to actually fully sign on to the agreement that's been reached. 
But I think we do have enough evidence, given current policies being pursued by China, to suggest that it does have something to do with the current environment, an environment created by the U.S. administration. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, right now China has decided to escalate a variety of territorial disputes that they have. And this is something that's been perplexing some observers about, like, why are they, like, why now? Why are they doing this now? Um, now, the response that they've given is twofold. One is that the U.S. seems to be distracted by COVID-19, as well as perhaps other issues, including an election that's coming up in November. And so now might be the time to press on these issues because there's less of a chance. So goes the rationale. There's less of a chance the U.S. would step in because they're distracted by other factors. The other part of the argument would be that China's doing this now because they need to have, they need to show um, some competency because there's a perception within the Chinese government that they were, they kind of took a hit for their response, initial response to COVID-19. And so taking aggressive actions against India, say with their border dispute, uh, Bhutan with their border dispute, and now apparently in the South China Sea, and the US government just indeed um, has seemed to make at least some diplomatic statements regarding China's uh, incursions in the South China Sea. And so you could say that this pact with Iran is in that suite of foreign policy, quote, victories that Beijing is trying to accumulate as a way of taking pressure off the fact that they had a poor response to COVID-19. So in that respect, I think that's how it's starting to play a role. So I think in the end, what you see is that is that Beijing is really trying to enact a whole suite of foreign policies, including whether it's the pact with Tehran, incursions with India, incursions with Bhutan, South China Sea, as a way to take off pressure from COVID-19. I think it has a little bit less to do with the actions being pursued by the Trump administration. Doesn't it just make good business sense? I mean, America's going to go in for a rough time. It's, it, it's mishandled the whole COVID-19 um, situation. Countries are just going, we're not relying you on you anymore for our future. Isn't China just doing the same and saying, well, we'll go where the business is? There's definitely a business, if you will, element to this. One of the key parts of the pact is Iran providing China with somewhere, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it's a significant portion of oil uh, exports from Iran into China. And so part of this is about acquiring oil from Iran. That's kind of, if you will, the issue linkage that China could be providing um, security, could be providing military cooperation to some key areas that Quite frankly, the Iranian government needs help with uh, key military technologies, for example. And in return, China would be receiving oil exports or oil imports, imports coming in from Iran. So, yeah, so I think there is kind of this, quote, business sense to it. You know, there's a deal to be made that can make sense on both sides. Moreover, I think where you could and the business element does point a little bit to where you could say that this is a product of the Trump administration, is that obviously the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran deal, and that offered some relief, sanctions relief to Iran, um, and then obviously the trade war that the Trump administration is having with Beijing. Both of those are forms of economic pressure, and so that could lead the two sides to say we need to band together to help, help ourselves since we're feeling this pressure 
from the Trump administration. But having said that, I'd still go back to my previous response, which is I think that might contribute. But ultimately, the fact that this deal was already being negotiated prior to the Trump administration coming in, which means prior to the withdrawal of the Iran deal, prior to the imposition of the imposition of a trade and tariff wars between um, on Beijing. I think because of that, it leads me to say that this doesn't have quite as much to do with the business sense as it does with just perhaps long-term strategic interests between China and Iran. Just to change the subject slightly as we finish up, in the past, young people especially would say things like, it doesn't really matter who's in charge because voting for one candidate or another does little to alter public policy. You've expressed before in the past that all this could see the demise of Trump at the next election. Much of that is going to depend, as always, on voter turnout, which is lower in the US than in most established democracies. How much do you think people now realise it does actually make a difference who is in charge? Oh, I think people understand that quite vividly now. Um, I think that in terms of the large trends that you see in the world, it has it doesn't make as much of a difference. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean the rise of China, right? So the rise of China would be going on regardless of who was U.S. president. But how do you manage that? Do you create conditions that could lead to conflict? Those are things that a leader's decision-making can actually influence. And so in that sense, I think this is something that it really matters. Same thing with COVID-19. Would the U.S. actually pose this hypothetical to some folks not that long ago? I said, you know, would we actually be under quarantine or lockdown? Would the economy have been shut down if Hillary Clinton had been president? And the overwhelming response was, yes, we would have, um, especially back in April, uh, late March, when the virus first came to the United States, or at least started to um, become more prominent in the United States. We now have evidence it was probably here much earlier. Having said, So that kind of points to it wouldn't have mattered whether it was Trump or Hillary Clinton. We still would have had uh, a shutdown, a lockdown, a quarantine. But where I think the leadership makes a difference is the extent of that lockdown, the extent of that quarantine, where you know the, the willingness of people to wear masks, for example, the messaging. And I think that that's where Trump has had a negative effect, is creating conditions that aren't helpful for fighting a pandemic, giving space for people who don't want to wear a mask or don't want to engage in the policies that could prevent the pandemic, uh, prevent the spread of the virus, that's where the leadership can make a difference. Now, having said that, I think the leadership gap, if you will, is more than just President Trump. Um, I would also put forward, just as I would put forward the hypothetical of would we be under lockdown if Hillary Clinton were president versus Trump, would we still have these problems that we're having with people complying with the lockdowns or quarantines or wearing masks if Hillary Clinton were president? And I think we would still because Ultimately, it comes down to the policies pursued by governors and the policies pursued by um, mayors. And what we're seeing in a lot of these southern states was there was a desire on the part of mostly, almost exclusively Republican governors to 
raised the quarantine, raised the, the shutdown much sooner than what was recommended by medical officials. And so that likely would have still happened even if Hillary Clinton had been in place. So that's just a long way of saying that, yes, leadership matters, but it matters in, I think, ways that are more subtle than what people typically want to think that it matters. It matters in messaging. It matters in setting the tone. It matters in giving people space to pursue policies that um, maybe don't help a situation versus hurt a situation. But I still don't think it matters for the long-term trends that we see in the international system or even in, within the U.S. economy itself. Mm-hmm.